Hello and welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle. Each month we bring together leaders and changemakers from within and around local government to discuss the most significant social challenges facing the sector. If you enjoy this podcast, please do leave us a rating on the podcast platform of your choice and recommend this episode to your colleagues. You can keep up to date with all the latest in local government news at lgcplus.com. Hello and welcome to the Local Authority, the podcast from the Local Government Chronicle. Today we'll be talking about how to support new councillors and how to run a council that is under no overall control. My name's Martin George, I'm the Deputy Editor of the Local Government Chronicle and I'm delighted today to be joined by William Benson, who is the Chief Executive at Tunbridge Wells Borough Council since I think 2009. Councillor Liz Lefman, who is the Liberal Democrat leader of Oxfordshire County Council. Councillor Abby Brown, chairman of the Local Government Association's Improvement and Innovation Board, and was Conservative leader of Stoke-on-Trent Council until last month's elections. Now, just to kick off, I'll ask everyone to say a couple of words about the situation they find themselves in their council regarding overall control numbers of new councillors, just so listeners know sort of your starting point where you're coming from. And then we'll have a chat about some of the issues involved. So, William, um, how are things at Tunbridge Wells at the moment? So Tunbridge Wells um, at the present time is governed by a, um, a partnership. So up until 2021, we were um, conservative controlled. Um, in the 2021 elections, we moved to a position of no overall control, where there were 24 Conservatives and 24 um, non-Conservatives. Um, interestingly, at that time, uh, the Mayor, upon whose casting vote we would rely, um, no longer stood as a councillor. She stood down at that particular election, so that was an interesting uh, annual meeting. Um, and then in 2022, we uh, moved uh, towards a, a um, a partnership uh, involving the Liberal Democrats as the largest group, a, the, the, the Labour group in the council and the Tunbridge Wells Alliance group, as well as uh, an independent member. Uh, and then at the most recent elections in 2023, the partnership grew the number of councillors within the partnership uh, and they remain in control of the council. So um, turning to you, Liz, um, tell us a bit about the situation at Oxfordshire. Well, in 2021, May 2021, um, we had our county council elections. Um, Prior to that, Oxfordshire was a majority-controlled Conservative council. Uh, But in May 2021, the Conservatives lost a significant number of seats, um, mainly to the Liberal Democrats, but also to the Greens. Um, And so we went from 13 Liberal Democrats to 21 Liberal Democrats, so quite a large increase, and from one Green to three. So we are now... um, We then formed an alliance with the Greens because the Conservatives only had 21 members. Um, And then as an alliance, we approached Labour and spoke about becoming an alliance with them as well. So we formed an alliance between the three parties, which is called the Oxfordshire Fair Deal Alliance. Uh, And that's been in operation now for the last two years. Fantastic. Thanks very much. And um, I'll now turn quickly to to Abby. Um, Tell us about Stoke-on-Trent. 
So today, um, Stoke-on-Trent has a Labour majority administration, but uh, between 2015 and 2019 um, had various shades of coalition, minority and majority administration. I think I was um, the deputy leader between 2015 and 2019 when we were a coalition of independents and conservatives. 2019, um, probably the most shocked person in the room when I became the leader then um, of a Conservative and Independent coalition. So we flipped over and then over the course of the four years after that um, became a minority Conservative administration and finished in May 2023 um, as, I guess, almost uh, maybe a majority administration with 22 out of 44 councillors. So I had experience of everything along the way there in the eight years. Fantastic. So um, really, really useful experiences from all three of our guests today who can really illuminate this topic. Um, I think it'd be maybe good to start, um, given that last month we had the elections where I think 80 councils changed control and we had a huge number of new councillors elected. So let's start off with the new councillors. Um, these people are elected um, to the council chamber. They're purely enthusiastic, want to make a difference. Um, perhaps they don't know the minutiae of how councils work um, and you know, big demands on their time as well. I wonder, how do you start getting new councillors up to speed um, so that they can hit the ground running and be you know, effective advocates for their residents and, and decision makers for their authority um, as quickly as possible? Um, William, I think I'll come to you first on this one. Um Great. So we, we do a variety of things. So fr from the moment that candidates are thinking of standing, we hold briefings for candidates and agents. And as part of that, um, we draw to their attention, you know, various materials they can use to familiarise themselves with the role. Um, we also highlight and emphasise the importance of an induction day. Uh, and this year, actually, we've put quite a lot of time and effort into reviewing our member induction procedures. So uh, on, on the, the, the day they're elected, we hand them out a sort of pack of information that's been sort of streamlined. Uh, we provide um, a whole lot of links, including um, to the LGA, which I have to say provides some um, very useful material. Um, and then we hold two days um, of induction. And that involves, you know, both officers talking a bit, explaining a bit about how the council works, but it also includes experiences from existing councillors um, including the leader, um, who sort of talked a bit about um, his experiences, um, just to guide, um, you know, how, how they're um, expected to behave, how the council works, um, and I guess also a little bit to calibrate expectations. You're right, they, the councillors come in sort of fresh from having promised to do all sorts of things um, and keen to make a difference. And I think one of the first challenges they find is that actually resources are quite limited and the almost the first thing we're focusing on is what we you know, have to stop doing in order to balance the budget, which I imagine must be enormously frustrating. Yeah, I, I can certainly imagine. Um, I, I mean, Abby, obviously you've, you've got your, your Stoke-on-Trent hat on, you've got your LGA hat on. Um, from both of those strands, what, what do you found have been sort of really effective ways of helping new councillors um, get up to speed? Well, I think certainly my experience is um, that as a group leader, you know, you, you need to be really proactive around this. I think, you know, in general, councils provide a really good induction themselves. But there is also something about your friends, your peers, your new group colleagues helping you 
through this. You know, I've gone through um, times where my group has, has doubled in size twice. And at that moment in time, what you really need to do is start buddying people up. Um, you know, invariably, you'll have new people who, who join, who some of whom didn't even expect to ever be a counsellor, some who really enthused and maybe know a bit, some who perhaps coming back from um, maybe having lost in the past. And I think if you compare people up, that's always really helpful um, and, and generally recognise that they won't know things. Um, and the most obvious things are often the things that they won't know. You know, I, I am always kind of very conscious that, um, you know, you get given lots of information by the council, which is really good. But what it often doesn't tell you is where you can go and get a cup of coffee, um, where the toilets are. Um, how do you get out? How long can I stay here? Where can I go and work? You know, can I can I plug my phone in somewhere? Um, where can I get a pen from if, I, if I've turned up and my pen doesn't work? Or, you know, those, those sorts of things. And I, I think that in particular is really important. I think certainly from an LGA point of view, we would also say that, you know, there's a huge amount of information out there that is general and strategic it's always really important to understand your place, but there is a huge amount of information that is the same across places at a very high strategic level. And I think certainly the LGA provides a huge amount of information and briefings now online that just give you a general background. And then, of course, the opportunity to go away and talk to your own officers, your peers um, about what's happening in your council. Now, Liz, um, I saw you nodding to quite a lot of what um, Abby was saying there. Um, does that echo with your experiences? Uh, very much so, yes. I mean, one of the things that um, I, can, I can refer to my own experience as a, as a new councillor, which isn't that long ago, it was only six years ago, um, but certainly having a single point of contact in the officer, amongst the officers um, who's just there to guide new councillors has been something that we've done. And I think that's really, really helpful um, for all the things that Abby's been talking about, really, the sort of general things around, you know, well, where am I going to this meeting? Where's meeting room three? All that kind of thing, you know, just knowing where you're going. Um, but the other thing I think that's really important, and you you mentioned this, Martin, is councillors come in with um, a desire to do some really quite quite important things for their own communities. And one of the frustrations is that because in a large council like Oxfordshire, they just don't know where to go. You know, they know that somebody wants something doing with a local road. Who do they speak to? It's having those contacts and being able to know who to turn to that's really important. And the buddying um, with somebody who's had more, uh, more experience on the council is really fundamental to that as well, because they, you know, an experienced councillor can say to somebody who needs to contact a roads officer, this is the route that you need to take. This is the person you need to talk to so that's incredibly important but speaking as someone who's been um, leader now for a couple of years I think the other thing is that we do need to review people's training because you know sometimes we assume that the induction is enough but actually we need a refresh and um, one of the things I've been talking to individual councillors about recently is how we might uh, how they might individually want to develop themselves as councillors and um, some of the training courses that the LGA offers for example um, our opportunities for some of our younger councils, particularly um, the next gen scheme, things like that, you know, really important for developing councillors um, who want to continue to be councillors um, throughout their career. Uh, so, yes, all of these things, I think, um, are incredibly important. And it's very difficult to get it right, actually, because, as you rightly say, you know, a lot of people come in very enthusiastic, wanting to get things done really quickly. But, of course, we are unfortunately constrained by limited resources. But it's just knowing where to point people, I think, that's most important. Thank you. The point you made about you know where councillors go to you know get help to get a, a bit of road repaired or whatever did make me question um, when new councillors come in, 
Is the first priority to get them to understand how to action residents' concerns and the casework, or are you trying to get them up to speed on the big strategic issues the council is facing and allowing them to you know contribute to the the, the, the big picture politics? Um, William, I don't know if you want to have a, a quick uh, a quick go on that one. So, so I, I think it's a mixture of both, and I think certainly we, as part of the induction, will talk about you know how we operate and some of the big picture things. But one of my favourite sessions is we've now embedded in our induction a, th- a thing where we just talk to newly elected councillors about things that have come up on the doorstep. So we go around the room and they each will say, well, in my ward, there's this particular issue or generally, you know, residents are feeling that the town's looking a bit tired or whatever it is. And then what we can do is take those practical issues that have come up on the doorstep and say, well, here are things that you might want to do about it. You know, if it's, uh, you know, kind of potholes, you know, here's how you register it, you know, on the county council's website and tell people you've done it and you can give them a, um, you know, a, a reference number to track. And we have existing councillors who will try and impart some of their knowledge as well because, you know, as we'll all know, some of the residents' concerns will pertain to local government or the particular organisations we represent. Others will be more more general. So I think it's a mix of the two, but I think actually taking practical experiences of things that have come up on the doorstep I found to be really helpful. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, I guess another thing that occurs to me, having having listened to that, is councillors come in really enthusiastic. And then, uh, certainly from my experience working at Kingston Council a couple of years ago, so two decades ago, councillors would then get sort of frustrated that, that they wanted to do this, this special thing for their ward, and then a year in, two years in, it's really hard. There's a, a council officer machinery, there's bureaucracy committees... It's really difficult to sometimes get that one bugbear that first got you to stand as a candidate to actually be resolved. I mean, Abby Liz, do you have any any thoughts on how to keep councillors' motivation going over those first couple of years when they first hit their first hurdles or stumble? Or sort of how to, um, you know, manage expectations, I guess, when they first join the council that you can't just say something and it happens on the ground? Um, Abby, how do you deal with things like that? So I think there's kind of two things going on, isn't there, often in groups. There's the individual um, in their ward or or maybe a couple of councillors in a ward doing something, but then there's also the group dynamic. And I think part of, you know, the the leadership role um, of of the group leader and the deputy is around how you ensure that people are able to draw on one or either or even both of those to ensure that they do remain engaged so it could be as simple, you know, one of the things certainly that, that we found ourselves doing quite a lot during COVID when clearly, you know, there was fewer there were fewer committees to attend. So there was a great deal more focus on individuals and how we could help them was talking about issues in people's wards. And I think, you know, I, this is my 14th year now as a councillor. And that was probably the first time ever that group meetings had been more about individual issues than what the group was doing. But actually, I found that really interesting and really helpful. And the response was really helpful. It's something we've carried on doing where, you know, you can use as a as a more senior counsellor your expertise to point people at things that they could do along the way or to assist them and then of course you know for some people um they will prefer the the group dynamic the the group you know the the going to scrutiny committees the being on quasar judicial or, or even more thematic issues stoke on transfer unitary authority um we've been in intervention with our children's services 
for a few years and, and certainly I found that it perhaps me you know biased as leader but I know there were members within my group who really enjoyed the opportunity to really get into children's services which is a bit of a hidden service that councils do but I think there is also something within your group around how you can help people to to do ward work but also actually to get more involved with the wider things within the council and you don't have to be a cabinet member to do that you could just be an enthusiastic backbencher who who wants to really properly get involved with perhaps corporate parenting or virtual school or, or indeed you know the other end of the spectrum on planning and really start to understand and become an expert within that field and I, I think again that's that's something we perhaps don't focus on often enough. I think and it, it's something I'd like to come to Liz about um, this role of you know that there are the, the cabinet members the executive that the committee chairs um, but but then they're the backbenchers um, and I mean do, do you get this sense that there's a split between the two and that um, for new councillors who are you know backbenchers um, are there frustrations how do you how do you really help them with, with that role and make it a success yes there's, there's no doubt um, a sense of frustration which I think is, is 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 endemic really in the whole cabinet system because cabinet members tend to be very very busy and so what tends to happen is that um, we don't find the time necessary. It's very difficult to find the time sometimes to brief our backbench members on some of the important things that are going forward. Um, so we've, we've experimented with different ways of doing that. And it's even more difficult when you've got cabinet members from different political parties because you've got strains there as well. So you've got... Um, a group in our in in our particular case, we have a very engaged Liberal Democrat group who want to know a lot about what's going on in cabinet, but they're not necessarily that that's not necessarily something that we can then insist that the Labour group do do as well. You know, so, so there's there's a sort of tension there between on the one hand the way the Liberal Democrat wants to involve itself and the way the Labour group wants to involve itself. So we've experimented with things like cabinet briefings, and that's been more or less successful. I wouldn't say it's been 100% successful. It depends on the cabinet member and, and how driven they are to support backbenchers with that information. We've also looked at ways in which people can shadow some of our portfolio holders, and that's partially successful, I would say, again. Um, so we haven't found the ideal way of ensuring that backbenchers are involved. We did do a big change in our scrutiny system as soon as we became the administration. We changed the number of scrutiny committees that we had, we increased the number of scrutiny committees and changed their remit. Um, and that has been really helpful because, as Abby has said, you know, involving backbenchers in some deep dives has been really successful. That's been a, an opportunity for people to get to grips with specific things. So, for example, we had a school transport working group that looked at some some quite nutty issues that we needed to deal with in school transport. And that's ongoing. Um, so that that can help, too. But I think there's a general sense amongst certainly within our group that people want to get much more involved in policy than they than it's possible to do. And I think one of the other things we're looking at now is um, we're looking at, at the government's governance system to see whether we want to continue to be a cabinet led authority or whether we want to be a committee led authority, which would give some of our backbenchers more involvement um, with some of the policy decisions that, that are made currently by the cabinet. So it, it is complex. And I think it's also the case that people do feel somewhat frustrated at different periods. Some people might feel more frustrated than others. Uh, and it's just having those discussions within the group and continually refreshing what it is that we're trying to do and recognising how difficult it can be for some people. And, and, and I'll pick up that point with William, um, that, that the difficulties that sometimes some councillors have um, 
obviously councillors who are elected, it's not a job, it's something they do around the rest of their lives. Um, I mean, for new councillors coming in, I mean, I remember inductions for councillors at Kingston, and they'd be given, just to scare them, I think, this sort of foot-high pile of paper, that these are the agendas for your children's services panel and the cabinet and whatever. Um, how on earth do, do, do you get busy, time-poor councillors to um, cope with this? So, so I think that's a really interesting point, and I think what, what, what I've kind of learned is I'm a bit of a creature of local government. I, I've been here for a while, so I'm trying to kind of understand from more recently elected councillors what their experience has been and some of the things we've been sort of that have been fed back to us have been really simple and really easy so for example the process of appointing members to committees quite often members have no idea what a committee does and if you read you know its terms of reference within the constitution it can be bamboozling so just putting in human terms what they do how they operate what sort of um, skills might be required to sit upon them. Um, the, the, the next thing we've done is actually, I think, using new councillors because they come in, they're kind of um, uninitiated in you know, some of the, the constraints and challenges and complexity of local governments. And actually, a lot of them are much more social media savvy and they're able to explain that to residents. So a bit earlier on, we were talking about some of the frustrations um, and, you know, I, th I think there is a frustration that you can't affect change as readily as you might want to. But having that ability to explain why not, I think, really helps, um, really helps the council. Um, I think there's a few other things we've done as well. Um, we have a series of cabinet advisory boards that meet before cabinet consider things. So it's an ability for them to use their, um, you know, their life experience, input their interests into the decision making. And that's really helped. We've certainly had much better decisions as a result of members challenging how we go about, you know, ensuring things, level of cover, what have you. And I, I think the final thing I'd say is just about the use of technology. So one of the things we did throughout the pandemic was we would have weekly briefings for members. And quite often that would just be me updating them on what was going on. But we've kept that. So on Fridays we have briefings and we hold those via Teams. And for those members that work... Um, there's a sort of portal they can log into and, and watch it at their leisure, which I think is really useful. We also have a weekly um, bulletin that goes out to all councillors, and I know that our cabinet have thought a bit about how they engage some of the backbenchers, both across the piece and within groups. Um, so I think there's no one silver bullet. I think it's you know using a variety of ends to to you know sort of tackle the issue really. Now, I know I started off this by saying how new councillors are elected and they're really enthusiastic and want to make a difference. Um, that maybe slightly glides over the fact that some people are elected who didn't want to be elected sometimes. You have a big wave election. You have the people who stood as paper candidates and they were strictly told that, oh, it's just a name on a bit of paper. You no chance you'll be elected. Suddenly they're elected and they just see the next four years of their lives disappear and evening meetings and everything. And certainly I've, I've known paper candidates who've come into the group slightly disgruntled. They feel it's their duty to see out the four years because the local people have put their trust in them. But equally, this isn't part of their life plan. Um, I wonder, I mean, Abby, Liz, I mean, have you come across this situation? How, how do you deal with people who don't really want to be councillors and are probably grudging at best. Well, I, I can't say I've ever come across that in my group, <laughs> um, but I have observed it in other groups. And what tends to happen is that those, I've, I've observed it where people have been elected within my division 
towards in the district council. And what tends to happen is that those people just disappear off the radar quite often. And that, I think, is quite disappointing. But, you know, I, if they didn't intend to become councillors in the first place, then I can understand why that happens. But I have to say we haven't experienced that, uh, at least not, you know, not in Oxfordshire. That, that's good to hear. A- Abby, um, what about your experiences here? So I, th- I think some of this is the art of leadership, isn't it? Um, I, I remember one of my backbenchers, and obviously, as I, as I described at the start of the podcast, you know, I've had experience in, in all sorts of, di- you know, opposition administration and all flavours of, op- of administration. Somebody said to me, is it more difficult to be leader of our group or is it more difficult to be leader of the council? And without a doubt, it is always more difficult to be leader of the group because you need to keep people informed. But you also need to understand what people's motivations are what the opportunities for them are and how you can best support them. And, and sometimes, you know, you find yourself doing things that, um, you know, you, d- you didn't expect to do as leader. But actually, if it keeps your team on board and, you know, my experience is that every vote is counted. So, you know, you have to explain to people that at, at the minimum they need to attend full council meetings. Um, there isn't really a great deal of opportunity to change those dates, but outside of that, I can support them to do other things. And then try and understand as well where they could find um, a, a place to gain satisfaction. Now, of course, clearly, if somebody stood as a paper candidate, didn't ever expect to be elected as a councillor and is rather disgruntled about the fact that suddenly they, they are, then you need to probably work a little bit harder to understand how you keep them on board, at least for those requisite four years, to get to a point where you can replace them. And, you know, I, th- I think, again, that's the art of leadership, isn't it? The minimum requirement is that you attend full council. How else can I support you then? Perhaps you won't sit on many committees. Um, perhaps I will support you with your ward work. I'll find you a good buddy to help you do that, who also helps us to find someone who can perhaps step in and replace you, um, ideally at the end of the four years, but if not before then and you know again I think that takes a huge amount of time as group leader but actually it can be quite fulfilling I've got um or experience of several members of um, my my group who stood who never thought they would get elected and did and who are still now councillors eight years down the line and in fact um, have brought other people forward um, I, I can think of one particular individual whose wife is also um, a councillor as well in our group as well and she and she's really good as well now so you know I, I think you have to acknowledge that it would be very challenging as leader. If everybody wanted to be leader of the group, we need all sorts of people to be councillors. And I think it's trying to understand their motivations and how you support them through it. It's actually really nice to hear some sort of encouraging successes and continuation from people who perhaps you know, it wasn't their life goal to be a councillor at that time in their life. So, so thank you for bringing that to the table, Abby. Um, so the art of the leadership, that brings us on to um, when a council is under no overall control. Um, presents different challenges to when you have a majority party in control. And I wonder what's, what are the key tips or advice to making that work, whether it's you know, forming a, an agreement with other parties or, or whether it's having to sort of squeeze by vote by vote somehow, I don't know. Um, William, from the, the Chief Executive's Chair, um, when you move from a, a majority party to then finally balanced and no overall control, What's the role of the chief executive in those transitions and in maintaining um, good um, running of the council when there's political potential instability? So I think pre-existing relationships are really important. Um, and I've worked hard throughout my time to um, you know, retain and maintain relationships with um, leaders of, of all political parties, whether in administration or opposition. 
Um, I think that there are clearly, you know, that the leader of the council and their cabinets are elected to, um, you know, drive the council's policy agenda and kind of oversee, you know, day-to-day decision-making. So, you know, that they have primacy in that. Um, I think it's about being clear, very clear about what officers can and cannot do. I think one of the dangers in these circumstances is that, you know, staff get drawn into the political crossfire. Um, and we, I might just repeat that because we just had a motorbike go by, sorry, on the road outside. Um, I'll, just, I'll just repeat that last little bit. Um, I, I think one of the challenges is that um, staff need to be clear about what they can and can't do. Um, there's, a, there's always a danger they might get drawn into the political crossfire. So I think that's really important. Fundamentally, I think it's in, it, councils need to have clarity about where they're going. So I think a, um, a sort of strategic plan or corporate plan or, or some sense of direction really helps. And I think if that is underpinned by deep and meaningful engagement with residents, I think that hopefully helps pull it above the political fray um, and gives you something sound upon which you can you can base decisions. I'm always fascinated, William, by the, the, the week or two after an election that has produced no real control. And obviously parties are having discussions with each other behind the scenes about you know, forging a way forward, perhaps impossible agreements. As an officer, do you involve yourself in those discussions? Do you have to be there to then introduce a, a note of reality to what can and can't be achieved? Or do you say that that's political, we've got to let the parties stand back, have their time to come up with their programme? And then we deal with whatever emerges from the smoke-filled room. So I think it's a bit of both. So for the past four years, I've had a note that I've provided to group leaders that has effectively been a summary of their intray. So I think all the the, the leaders we've had have been sitting uh, councillors, so they're aware of all the papers that have been put before them in terms of the budget and you know policy framework documents and all the rest of it. But but I produced you know, a note that sets out all the kind of issues, kind of nice and nasty, um, that are awaiting them. I also try and give some expectations as to what I need for the council, the fact that we're going to need a cabinet, the fact that we will need, you know, to allocate, you know, cabinet portfolios and budgets and staff and so on to those portfolios. Um, I kind of offer away days, I offer to have them facilitated. And then really what I do is I just make myself available. So I make sure that after, you know, between, between the election and the annual meeting, I'm there. Um, and I've had slightly different experiences over the course of the past two years. I think the probably because it was a new administration last year, I was called upon a bit less. Um, this year, um, I, I was more heavily involved. And I think one of the lessons that was learned is that it's all very well naming cabinet portfolios, but actually... It's helpful to have two perspectives. You know, my perspective as chief executive in terms of workloads, partnerships, strategies, and so on. So we we held a session that I I didn't have any expectation would work, but it worked brilliantly. Where we had the cabinet in with kind of flip chart papers and post-it notes, and we sort of co-designed what what their portfolios would look like, and it worked very well. So I think you know the the role for a chief exec is is to be there to provide guidance and advice, but to recognise that you know, the politics are going to have to sort themselves out. And I don't want to, I'm not making any assumptions about your own council here, but when when an administration does hit difficulties, when there are different parties in it, when there are disagreements, when the thing could all fall apart, again, is it a case that chief execs makes themselves available? Or is is there a role or a duty to sort of somehow 
insert yourself in there for the good of the smooth running of the, the council? So I, I think they they have got in place various protocols by which they manage some of those processes themselves. Um, and I do think the chief executive has a duty to keep you know the show on the road, to keep you know staff clear about what they should be doing, you know to keep budgets being balanced, to keep services being delivered. But there is a line that, that we shouldn't cross, which, which is politics. And I think what I make very clear is that, you know, I think confidences are really important. So when we're in a room, you know, with, with the, you know, the administration as a whole, that's confidential to them. If I'm talking to individual group leaders, you know, that will be, be confidential to them. So it, it's not one of these black or white things. I'm afraid it's kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's a question of judgment and some of it is sort of operating within shades of grey. Fantastic. So that, that's the officer's view. Um, I'd love to know from the, the politicians we have here, what's the key to leading a um, minority administration or a, a partnership or a coalition between different parties and making it work? Um, because it, it must... I mean, Abby talked about the art of leadership. This really must be the art of leadership here. Um Liz, do you want to, to start off? Because you're, you're two years in um, to your um, administration. Um, what have you found has really helped it um, hang together and deliver? Um, well, two things really spring to mind immediately. The first is that when we first set up the alliance, um, we put down a list of our priorities, which was agreed between the three parties and which has been the absolute, that's been the core of everything that we do. I mean, that's something which was communicated to officers very early on. Um, Whenever we look at new policies now, we relate them back to those priorities. So that's that's been really important in binding us because some of those priorities came from the Labour group, some came from the Greens and some came from the Liberal Democrats. We brought them together into an agreement. So we can always refer back to that. And in fact, at the moment, we're probably going to look at a refresh, a slight refresh of that, because some of those priorities probably, we've probably got too many, actually, is the truth. But the other thing, of course, is um, the ability to compromise, the ability to find a way through issues that arise that where you get disagreement. And there's no doubt that on some key issues, we have had disagreement within the Cabinet, where we have um, fallen out over very specific things around some of the policies that we're bringing forward. Um, it's, and I mean, I'm sure that um, many people listening to the, this podcast will be familiar with the discussions that have been had around things like low traffic neighbourhoods, etc. And to say that they're controversial is probably an understatement. I mean, there are views on both sides, but that con- controversy was also within our own discussions, you know, about issues that arose for local residents around those around those particular policies so finding our way through that has been really important but what's happened is that we've we've actually come together behind things we're now very much a a solid group around some of those things uh, and um, and we all work together on them so it's it's being able to compromise it's being able to shift but it's being able to also depend on some pretty rock solid priorities that we've all agreed um, that's really been been the root of our ability to to survive these two years. 
And I think, looking forward, the likelihood is that unless something radical happens, we will continue to work together over the next couple of years, but we'll see. I mean, the challenge is going to be when we come towards the um, the elections. And we're going to have elections next year, which are going to be, I'm sure, um, quite difficult for us in all in all respects, because there will be different different people fighting different corners out there. And then we'll have the county elections coming up in 2025. So... I'm not going to predict what's going to happen, but it's obviously going. we're obviously going to move into a rather more difficult period. But I have to say the first two years have been based on, as I say, our priorities and our ability to compromise around those priorities. Just to come back very quickly on that point about the compromising, I'd love to know where that happens. Do those discussions take place among the cabinet members at the top? Or do you somehow make sure that the, the, the backbenchers and the the wider groups of the different constituent parts also buy into that? Because I, I can imagine situations where the cabinet, they've thrashed it out, they've come to a compromise, but the wider group say, we don't like that, or we, we, we've not, they've not been through the process that got to that agreement, and then you've got opposition all behind you, all across the chamber. Where, where does that discussion happen? That's a really important question, and the answer is both. I mean, clearly there have been discussions in Cabinet, um, in our informal Cabinet meetings around certain issues. But yes, we have taken that to the wider group, and we have alliance group meetings as well as our own group meetings, our group group meetings, so we can we can discuss those issues in a broader context and give backbenchers the opportunity to have their say. So yes, it's been done at both levels. Now, Abby, you talked at the start about various permutations and combinations you've you've been involved in at Stoke-on-Trent. Um, what sort of insight have you had from, from those experiences about how to how to make nodal control work? Well, I think you know a great many of the things that Liz and also William talked about. Really, I think you know there's a, you need to have a huge amount of infrastructure behind no overall control, um, more so clearly than you need to have with probably a majority. But I think also. Um, the ability to sometimes bring officers into those spaces as well to understand uh, what the challenges are. You know, my first budget as leader didn't go through when half of my coalition partners group didn't vote for us. And the meeting immediately after that council meeting, my chief exec was in um, because I needed him to be there to understand what the challenges were and how we were going to address that. You know, experience is wonderful, isn't it? And you reflect back and I think maybe there were some things that I could have done more of. Um, and I think ultimately it is about the conversation. I think Liz's point um, around needing to reach agreement is really important. And it was one of the things that I probably think helped to mean that working in coalition for six years, probably all together, worked for us because compromise is crucial. And if you go into a room knowing that you're going to have to compromise, you're probably in a better frame of mind than you would be if you went in thinking, I'm going to push my way through and this is what we'll do. Because ultimately, you need the numbers in on the day, and you can't do that if you're not prepared to be open-minded about what the opportunities are. So, so I think you know the the conversation is is the crucial thing, both with your colleagues, with your group, but also with where you need to with your officers as well, um, who who can help you around that. And I think you know, William's standpoint to me sounds absolutely perfect i've often thought that the best officers are the ones who take everyone with them and at that moment after the election when you don't know who's going to be in charge the ability of a good chief exec to have a good um, level of dialogue with each of the group leaders is really important and that obviously clearly continues then moving through the rest of that um, 
municipal cycle really um, and leaves the chief exec in an ability you know to circulate a note as William said where you know what's going to be in your entry and means that everybody when you go into the negotiations around what you're going to do is clearly cited on what the challenges are going to be. It's fascinating stuff uh, we're almost running out of time but a really quick question um, does novel control and the process you go through to get to decisions does it make for better decision making does it mean that more angles are looked at the tyres are kicked a bit more thoroughly a really quick sort of answer from all, all three of you, but starting with Abby, I think. What's your, your take on that? Um, yes and no. I think there were some decisions that we made in overall control that were absolutely better. But I think in terms of the challenges around transformation for local authorities and some of the bigger issues, it does make it harder because that pace is much harder to achieve when you need to go through all those steps. Um, and also um, to get everybody into the same space in terms of understanding where, you know, you'll be very lucky if you've got two groups who are equally sized, uh, equally led by people who are equally keen to be equally involved and so on and so forth. I think invariably, you know, you've got to take everyone with you and it does make it much more difficult when you've got those negotiations. So so a bit of a yes and no. Liz, um, better decision making, do you think, um, in, in these sort of no control situations? Um, I think you thrash it out a bit more. I mean, to be honest, I suspect that our predecessors have been in, in, in administration for so long that they just sort of went along with a lot of the stuff that was that was on the table. Um, I think that it gives us an opportunity to really think carefully about what it is that our residents have elected us to do and why we're doing it. And it also um, means that we have to consider what the impact of some of the things that we want to do might have on other residents and we've that's been a really good discussion. So we, we have had to really think carefully um, about what, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think that's perhaps the most important thing, because at the end of the day, what we really want to do is to deliver the best possible outcomes for our residents. Yeah, absolutely. And William, from where you sit, seeing this whole decision making process, um, do you think we get better quality decisions when things have to be just discussed so so intensely or other points of views coming in perhaps? So I, I think there are pros and cons and I, I think you know I have to say I think these are you know these are absolutely political considerations but from an office perspective I, you know I think the pros are you know as has been said things get looked at in a bit more detail they get sort of chewed around a bit more I think that the, the, the cons are sometimes decisions can take a little bit longer I think when you combine no overall control with elections by thirds, I think when you're when you're into difficult decision making, it makes it much more difficult when people's eyes are on sort of you know future elections. I think it makes it a bit more it a bit more challenging to take difficult decisions. Um, so it, it's a mixed picture, really. Fantastic. Well, I, I think we've reached the end of our allotted time. Unfortunately, there's so much more we could discuss. Um, I was hoping I might see politicians start campaigning for noble control, but I'm not sure that um, Liz or Abby uh, are quite that enthused by the idea there. Um, shakes of the head and raised eyebrows, I see. Um, all three of you, thank you so much for everything you brought to that discussion. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Um, thank you at home for listening. I hope you found it um, useful. And um, please do look out for the next Local Authority podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Local Authority, brought to you by Local Government Chronicle. You can listen to the full back catalogue of episodes on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or by visiting lgcplus.com forward slash podcast.
We'll see you next time for another episode of The Local Authority.